0: start today's program slightly lost in space, I think, and I want to thank Mr. Rilland for, again, replaying that excellent John Williams theme song from the legendary TV show from the 60s. Lost in Space was not a very good show, but it sure had a great theme. My first space item comes from a book I pulled off the shelf, which I thought would be useful for a well, any show we do, because it's called Rules of Thumb, a Life Manual, subtitled Brilliant Guesstimates, Shortcuts, and a Few Shots in the Dark by a man named Tom Parker. We have quoted it from this book before, and we will quote from it right now. From the item on page 64, which from the rulesofthumb.org review board is this item. To determine the size of a meteorite, divide the diameter of its crater by 20. Now, you astute listeners of this program, of course, will immediately ask the question, well, on Earth, on Mars, on the Moon, what are you talking about? And I do think it would vary a bit, depending upon which body you're hitting with that meteor. But I'm not enough of a physicist to really figure it all out. And something else we may never figure out is what exactly happened with the first meteor from beyond the solar system documented to hit the earth i hope you saw this headline it turns out that a high-speed fireball that struck the earth eight years ago back in 2014 looks to have been interstellar in origin january 8th of that year an approximately meter-sized rock from space streaked through the sky off the coast of Manus island in papua new guinea burned up with an energy equivalent to about 110 metric tons of TNT, which I guess is about a tenth of a kiloton. Pretty big blast. Sensors on U.S. government satellites, which are designed to detect foreign missile launches, uh, witnessed this fireball. Due to a partnership between the, the Defense Department and NASA, the data describing the event was shared in a public database. The with one hosted by the Center for Near-Earth Object Studies, which is part of JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Some astute scientists took a look at the data and went, whoa, whoa, that was moving pretty fast, really fast. So fast that we wonder if it could be from the solar system, because if you reach a certain speed, you ain't orbiting the sun. This is something we've learned with the Presumed asteroid Oumuamua, which came came whizzing past uh, the sun a couple years ago, and apparently has now been joined by an interstellar comet, comet Borisov. So this marks the third object of a different category, which we think came from elsewhere. Now, if you're interested in doing the math on this, and we hope you are, at about Earth's distance from the sun, anything moving than faster than about 42 kilometers a second on a hyperbolic orbit. It's too speedy to be captured by the sun's gravity. When they did the math on this fireball, this meteor, it came out at 45 kilometers per second. But you had to factor in the motion of the earth relative to this rock. When they did that, they discovered that its relative speed was closer to 60 kilometers per second. Anyway, it took the government a few years to kind of admit that the data from the spy satellites was within a certain degree of accuracy. It was needed for them to say, yeah, that thing came from elsewhere. But after a few years, they finally did so. Which means finding a chunk of that material somewhere off New Guinea would be very, very interesting. How old is it? All the meteors we have uh, currently... Barring a few exceptions, which came from asteroids, came from Mars, came from the moon. Most meteorites are aged 4.567 billion years, which dates to the origins of the solar system. Who knows how old this, this meteor that hit us was? People sure would like to know. But what really intrigues me about this story is the fact that this really isn't the first time there's been suspicions of a meteor from outer space. Back in 1998... Something came in burning hot over Greenland, was picked up on, it turns out, not spy satellites, but uh, by witness reports, three seconds of videotape. And oh, I stand corrected as I look at the article. Some data from the U.S. defense satellite um, calculated the speed of this object at 56 kilometers per second, which, as we know, of course, is too damn fast to be something local. Now, coming in and burning up over Greenland, it's a lot better than plopping in the ocean over Papua New Guinea, but I don't believe they had enough uh, data to figure out just where this thing landed. Scientists apparently did go out in southwestern Greenland to try and find fragments of it, but and they came back with 200 samples of dust, and I don't think any of that dust panned out. But in the articles written about this event 20 years ago, they said, well, you know, this is bound to happen once in a while, and... um Maybe next time it does, we'll be ready. Well, apparently, 16 years later, we were readier, and now we know that these things are happening. And in other outer space items related to breaking the local speed limit, we have the fact that uh, scientists now think that the speediest stars in our Milky Way galaxy, which in this case are moving at hundreds or even thousands of kilometers per second, uh, probably came from dwarf galaxies that got devoured by the Milky Way in the distant past. This conclusion is based on a study of 15 of these very fast-moving stars. that was conducted by the Apache Point Observatory in New Mexico and the Las Campanas Observatory in Chile. The article notes that uh, these stars aren't the very fastest hypervelocity stars that have speeds in excess of 1,000 kilometers per second, but rather the category called extreme-velocity stars, which only move at hundreds of kilometers per second, which I guess is... A lot easier to examine. I'm not sure why that is. They're not exactly streaking across the sky. Whereas I know the fastest moving star relative to us is Barnard's star, also sometimes called Barnard's runaway star, which takes like a century to uh, move like half the width of the full moon. So these are not exactly meteor like streaks. But these astronomers took a look at the spectra of these various stars. And found they had unique combinations of elements. And according to the Week magazine, of the 15 extreme velocity stars, they found eight with chemical compositions that were definitively different from Milky Way stars. And now I'm a little vague on the details on that, but I'm going to take them at their word. Anyway, since I have this book Rules of Thumb in in my hand, I think I'll pull a few items out of it before we before we move on to more regular fare. If there is such a thing as regular fare on Radio Parallax, well, that's not true. We're able to conduct interviews just fine. In fact, we will be conducting one such interview in our second half today with Dr. of Pharmacy Howard McKinney, who is always a veritable fountain of information. I got a lot of things I want to ask him about, and I will do so in our second segment. But for now, I want to go back to the rules of thumb and pull up a rule of thumb for how to annoy a musician which according to a man named Paschaya Septimus described as musician are to request of a piano player to play Piano Man for a guitarist to play Stairway to Heaven for a drummer to perform Wipeout for singer-slash-rhythm guitarist Free Bird for fiddlers the devil went down to Georgia and for sax players the intro to Baker Street. Here's a startling statistic, apparently from Jimmy Minturn, described as auto technician. Mister Minturn claims that at highway speeds, using the AC is more gas efficient than leaving the windows open, because when you leave the windows open, you greatly increase the wind drag on your car. Who knew? Here's one that I can't verify, but I'm proud to report on since since we're now back on the air. At KDVS in Davis according to Martha Farnsworth Ritchie, former director of the U.S. Census Bureau inviting more than 25% of the guests from the economics department to a university inviting more than 25% of the guests from the economics department to a university party will ruin the conversation (laughs) if you you have any insight onto this dear listener, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com and finally, here's one from someone named Elaine Gibbons, and we do note that the author of this book is a, a flight instructor, but apparently if you're flying over a rural area and you need to know the wind direction at ground level, look at the cows. Reportedly, cows normally stand with their heads downwind. I say reportedly because someone who wrote into David Letterman and was read on the viewer mail section had conflict... Said that he had conflicting reports on whether cows stood with their heads into the wind or or downwind. So Letterman, being Letterman, and this was the last of the of the, of the mailbox items, brought a cow onto the set and had the stagehands turn on a very large fan. Sadly, for our purposes and for Dave, the cow did not seem to be interested in orienting itself to the fan but to the amusement of Dave and the audience decided on its own volition to exit stage right out an open door. I think we'll jump at this point into the good, the bad, and the ugly. the Week magazine. It was a good week this week for shamelessness. After former Donald Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort launched a consulting firm, quote, to help people with strategic advice, unquote. Manafort was pardoned by Trump after he was convicted of bank and tax fraud for millions of dollars paid to him by Russian oligarchs. Of course, we do imagine that there probably are quite a few Russians out there that could use a little little strategic advice for how to manage their future. And speaking of Trump, it was a bad week last week. And for, I guess you'd say, protocol, what was described as an unusual breach in what was described as an unusual breach of protocol, the Trump administration failed to provide the State Department with an accounting of gifts given to Trump and other White House officials by foreign governments during his final year in office. The law requires that any gifts worth more than $415 be reported. Richard Painter, a former top ethics lawyer for Georgia W. Bush administration, which is sort of a funny concept, (laughs) but said Mr. Painter either was really stupid or really corrupt. I say, why not both? And it was an ugly week for what I I, I guess you would call maybe Christian unity with the news that an Illinois church is, quote, fasting from whiteness, unquote, or at least did so during Lent by not using any music written by white people. Instead, First United Church of Oak Park said it would use music drawn from African-Americans and Native American traditions. Reverend Lydia Mulkey said, "I cannot change the color of my skin." Mulkey's white, by the way, but said, "I can change what I listen to." One loud. we really don't have any evidence, Mr. Mellon, that, that, that the Reverend was listening to James Brown. But why not? Oh! And we have an item Actually, this is not. An item from the past week. This, this dates back to December of last year. Somehow we missed this, but do think it's worthy of a, of a look back. At that time, in late December, Kyle Rittenhouse posed for a thumbs up photograph with former President Trump at Mar a Lago. Trump said he was a nice young man, adding that Rittenhouse had asked to meet him because he was a fan. In case you don't remember, Rittenhouse fatally shot two protesters and wounded a third during violent Black Lives Matter demonstrations in Kenosha, Wisconsin. A jury accepted his argument that he had acted in self-defense. It's worthy of note, according to the piece I have, that after his trial, Rittenhouse sat for an interview with Tucker Carlson and told him that he supported the BLM movement and was not a racist person. Here's the part I like and I think is worthy of the look back. Rittenhouse was at that point fighting with the right-wing Fight Back Foundation. They were fighting over who should get the $2 million the group raised for Rittenhouse's bail. Rittenhouse's lawyer is arguing that Rittenhouse is entitled to the cash, while Fight Back said it should be refunded to the organization. We need to look up where that money went, uh, but I'm not going to do so at the moment. we've had a lot of talk on this program about how uh, Vladimir Putin's been trying to influence the elections here in the United States with, I would say, a fair amount of success. But what doesn't get a lot of ink is the fact that his efforts are not confined to the U.S. Putin's been trying to stir up trouble in pretty much any nation you want to choose that's of interest to Russia. Um, France, in particular, has, uh, well, in France, Marie Le Pen is described as a far-right nationalist. She is going to face Emmanuel Macron. That will be on April 24th. It's worth noting Le Pen and her national rally party want to replace the European Union with a looser confederation. They want to withdraw France from NATO's integrated command. And it seems certain that a Le Pen victory would unwind France's external alliances, which 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 are all things Vladimir Putin wants. And explains why it is he's helping fund what would you think would be a, a party that would be opposed to Russian interests. But then you think that in America, the Republican Party would be opposed to Russian interests, wouldn't you? Although we made some passing mention uh, a couple of weeks back on this show about how some commentators were predicting that the GOP would... Um, Really start waking up and (laughs) reviving its uh, anti-Russian expansion wing and condemning this war in Ukraine, but I don't think I've seen a lot of it. Have have, have you, dear listener? If if you have, please direct us to where we could find some information on how uh, how how Russia's actions and Putin's actions are 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 under widespread condemnation. You know, not that we should be longing for the Cold War when you know conservatives were anti-Russian. There were some good reasons to be anti-Soviet back in the day. Not that we're pining for the days when conservatives here in America hated everything Soviet. The Atlantic had an article in the current issue, which, which actually I found quite compelling. It was a, a look back at World War II. Probably worth a couple minutes of discussion. The piece by Daniel Immerwall, titled Change the Map, Change the Moral, starts out, What was the Second World War about? According to Allied leaders, that wasn't a hard question. This is a fight between the free world and a slave world, U.S. Vice President Henry Wallace explained. It is between Nazidom and democracy, Winston Churchill said, with tyranny on one side and liberal, peaceful powers on the other. Said Emerwald, were it so simple? The Allies' inclusion of the Soviet Union, a dictatorship as absolute as any dictatorship in the world, D. Roosevelt once called it, muddied the waters. But, notes the author, the other chief allies weren't exactly liberal democracies either. Britain, France, the Netherlands, Belgium, the United States, and depending on how you view Tibet and Mongolia, China were all empires. Together they held, by my count, more than 600 million people, more than a quarter of the world, in colonial bondage. This fact wasn't incidental. Empire was central to the causes and course of the war, yet the colonial dimensions of World War II aren't usually stressed. He notes that the conventional portrayals of World War II, which focus on Hitler's invasions of sovereign states in Europe, works pretty well, but it really falters when the focus centers on the Pacific. The Japanese targeted colonies. They seized them under the banner of Asia for the Asians. And when the Allies beat Japan back, they returned Burma to the British, Indonesia to the Dutch, and Southeast Asia to the French. It, it's an interesting perspective. We certainly do tend to look at World War I as a giant fiasco of colonial powers grabbing for, uh, for land and embroiling the U.S. in the whole mess, but we don't look at World War II that way. It should be noted, though, that going into the 1930s, the Allied powers held 15 times more colonial acreage than the Axis states did. The author goes on to explain how useful colonialism was to these great powers. In the first half of the 20th century, industrial powers depended upon raw materials from far off lands. Without colonies, this was tough. Your article notes that in the Pacific, World War II was transparently a fight for empire. I was intrigued by his focus on India. Mohandas Gandhi had warned FDR that Out in the territories, Allied boasts of protecting freedom and democracy rang hollow. India entered the European conflict in 1939, not out of any popular desire to quash Nazism, but because its British viceroy had declared war on its behalf. Many of Gandhi's fellow nationalists quit their government posts in protest, but to little effect. London requisitioned troops and supplies from its colony paid for with IOUs to be redeemed after the war. The economic drain on India, already poor, caused a crisis. Notes the article, conditions grew dire in Bengal, an Indian province near the edge of Japan's empire, which now extended into Burma. There, colonial authorities confiscated food, evacuated villages, and destroyed tens of thousands of boats for fear that Japanese invaders might get them. Yet this also removed local sources of support and encouraged panicked hoarding many Bengalis went hungry. I'm not sure about the veracity of the numbers, but the article quotes an author, Overy, noting that the famines in Bengal had a death toll, which somewhere between 2.7 to 3 million. The article states that pressed to send aid, the war cabinet in London refused. Churchill blamed Indians for breeding like rabbits. Gandhi and the leaders of his party, the Indian National Congress, vigorously protested the government's famine-inducing policy of confiscating food, and days after threatened mass civil disobedience if India wasn't freed. Churchill was apoplectic. We will not let the hottentots and tots by popular vote throw the white people into the sea, was his view. The British arrested the National Congress leadership, including Gandhi. By the end of 1943, almost 92,000 were behind bars. I was unaware of the fact that the Indian nationalist Subhas Chandra Bose escaped British house arrest and fled to Hitler's Germany, where he recruited thousands of captured Indians to fight for the Wehrmacht. Then moving to Japan, he helped raise an Indian expatriate army to attack British India. Anyway, some interesting perspectives here. They notes that in 1940, nearly one out of every three individuals on the planet was colonized. By 1965, barely one in 50 was. And finally, David Talbot, our good friend, founder of Salon.com, sounded off recently on the issue of uh, what's going on in the Bay Area regarding efforts to supposedly, supposedly create affordable housing. Said David in a recent dispatch, San Francisco values versus YIMBY values. Once upon a time, San Francisco stood for diversity, tolerance, affordability. It was a city you could live in without being rich and figure out who you were, no matter who you were. But now, under the cloak of YIMBY values, yes, in my backyard, the city is being overrun by hedge fund developers and their useful idiots. Tools like Matt Haney, who once upon a time defeated a YIMBY candidate as a progressive in his race for the Board of Supervisors, but that was then. Now in his race for California State Assembly, Haney has turned himself into a YIMBY spokesman, sucking up campaign dollars from the corporate real estate lobby. YIMBYs dominate the media landscape these days. In the San Francisco Chronicle, you have hacks like columnist Heather Knight. In the New York Times, you have slightly more agile pro-development hacks like Ezra Klein. YIMBYs believe in the old Reagan school of voodoo economics. They believe if you build more and more market-rate housing, these units will somehow magically trickle down and make the housing market more accessible for average working families. Guess what? The only people who benefit from this magical thinking about housing are Wall Street developers and the puppets they finance teachers waiters hospital employees firefighters artists social workers street maintenance crews all the people who actually make a city run who make it worth living in can't afford to live in a yimby san francisco to which i say thank you david talbot let's take a short break i'm douglas everett this is radio parallax we've got plenty more stick around Superman.